thanks for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Perhaps it's a nice little introduction. You can just introduce yourself and the work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely, and uh, happy to be here. Um, my name is Philip van Petingham. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia. That's in Vancouver, Canada. And um, I have a research lab uh, that has a prime focus on certain classes of ion channels, uh, but mostly ion channels involved in muscle excitation contraction coupling. And my lab uses a range of methods, uh, most of which is structural biology. So we utilize uh, cryo-EM and X-ray crystallography, uh, but we do like to complement that with, with functional assays using electrophysiology. Perfect. So you mentioned a couple of different topics there. Uh, you mentioned cryo-EM. I also, I came across your most recent work when you were looking at, uh, and I'm apologies if I botched this, ryanodyne receptors. And so maybe you could look after uh, or discuss openly uh, that publication that recently came out of Nature, where you looked at pathological uh, confirmations of disease mutant ryanodyne receptors revealed by cryo-EM, and then just kind of give us a little backstory on that. Yeah, so I'll give the backstory. So, so the ryanodyne receptor, um, I like to call this the, the giant among the ion channels. So uh, from all the ion channels that we currently know, um, uh, what I would say bona fide ion channels, the ryanodyne receptor is, is the largest one. And it has a special location. It's not a channel that you find at the plasma membrane. Uh, it's a channel that sits in an intercellular organelle uh, that's either the endoplasmic reticulum or in muscle cells, it's very abundant in sarcoplasmic reticulum. And uh, it's called the ryanodyne receptor because you know, go figure, it forms a receptor for a molecule called ryanodyne uh, but the ryanodine actually is a, is a molecule that was found in a South American plant, Ryania speciosa. And it's a plant that uh, has this molecule that's a natural insecticide. And uh, the, it was found later on, the receptor for this is a particular ion channel, uh, but the name kind of stuck. So it was called the ryanodine receptor because of its ability to bind this natural insecticide. And so we now know um, that uh, the human genome, for example, encodes three different ryanodine receptor isoforms that are expressed in, in several tissues, but they're really abundant in muscle. And that includes skeletal muscle. So it's very important for, for our movement, uh, but also um, cardiac muscle, uh, where it plays a huge role in, in the contraction of the heart. And as you can imagine, is that uh, that's such a fundamental role that if there are disease mutations, so uh, sequence variants in the genes that encode these, that's going to lead to you know, some serious disorders. And in the heart, it causes very severe form of cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, with very severe, I mean the type of arrhythmia that can kill you even without any warning. Uh, in skeletal muscle, it causes a couple of different uh, disorders. Uh, one is a disorder called malignant hyperthermia. And uh, the disease is, is not that well known. And what it does, it actually is, is hidden in the name. So hyperthermia, increased temperature to a malignant level, means uh, to a level where you can die. And it's a condition where when you have a mutation in the ranadine receptor in your skeletal muscle, and on top of that, you get volatile anesthetics during surgery, uh, this causes an opening of the ranadine receptors you get a, a massive influx of calcium that flows from the sarcoplasmic reticulum 
into the cytosol, uh, and that's uncontrolled, and that uh, uh, yeah creates what's called a hypermetabolic state. <clears throat> and so essentially, what happens is that people who have these mutations; they can have a perfectly normal life until they undergo surgery, and then all of a sudden they can actually die on the spot uh, because of this. And so that was that's the segue on on. Uh, part of our research program is to try and understand this ryanidine receptor, how it functions, how it looks like, how it's regulated, but also specifically what do disease-causing mutations specifically do to the channel. And that's part of, of, of the work that we recently published, is to use cryo-EM to try and understand what is it exactly that disease mutations do to the structure uh, of this protein. Perfect. So it looks to me like there are a lot of clinical um, significancies that this receptor is involved with. Um, would you say that the study of riatidine is, is fairly new or, I mean, in my, you know, kind of due diligence prior to our talk, I know that, um, you know, I came across, you know, topics that mentioned that it, it's a very hard, um, you know, target to get a, a good reading from. Um, so in, in a two layered kind of question, um, is ryanodine or has ryanodine been investigated, um, you know, fairly recently, or is this something that's been actively researched for some time now? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was to generate the, the preliminary data that you received from this and how that continued on to, you know, the work that you're doing, applying that into um, crystallography and cryo-EM. Yeah, so, so it has been researched for quite a while. Um, and so it was uh, first actually purified um, in the 1980s um, who, uh, by a couple of groups who actually already went to characterize it biochemically. So it has a, a fairly long history. Uh, but what's maybe surprising is it's that you know, ion channels in general are great drug targets. There's many ion channels that are already targeted by drugs that are on the market. And what's surprising perhaps is that the largest ion channel of, of them all, the ranadine receptor, is, is I would say very understudied uh, at the pharmacological level. So there's a huge potential for small molecule drugs, maybe even some biologics that could you know, alter the function of the ranadine receptor. And so you know, the, often the question is, why is that the case? And perhaps because it's, it's a protein that's a little harder to study uh, biochemically. It's a large protein, like any other ion channel, it's a membrane embedded protein, but because of its size and also the fact that it's located intracellularly, um, that makes it a little harder uh, to study, uh, makes it a little harder to set up high throughput screens for, uh, for drugs, for example. Uh, but it has been known in the field uh, that this protein is uh, the cause for genetic disorders uh, as early as 1991. And that's actually a, a nice piece of preliminary data that's worth mentioning. So um, the disease malignant hyperthermia, so this, this uh, reaction to volatile anesthetics, um, has been described a long time ago. But the genetic cause, of course, uh, remained unknown for quite a while. Uh, but it was found that there are um, uh, certain pigs uh, that have symptoms that are very similar to malignant hyperthermia. So there are pigs that have a disorder known as porcine stress syndrome. And it's a, a type of disorder that when the pigs make sudden movements, get stressed, they also get symptoms very similar to malignant hyperthermia. 
And so this, this big model um, was actually utilized by uh, uh, several researchers uh, to find the genetic cause. And this was actually the work by, by uh, David McLennan, the late David McLennan, uh, who found that it's due to a mutation in the ryanodine receptor, the skeletal muscle ryanodine receptor in that pig. And um, actually very soon after was found that the exact same point mutation in humans uh, was also responsible for malignant hyperthermia. So that kind of clearly established the link. Um, but I'm mentioning this is because we actually made use of this pig model. So the, the pig model actually is still in existence. Uh, in part, especially in the past, uh, it was found that, that pigs that have this disease mutation, uh, they have uh, what I would call a selective advantage. That is that their muscle is, is, is they have a lot more muscle and actually have less fat, less fat tissue. So what that means it's actually, it could be marketed as, as meat, that it was kind of a low fat uh, pork meat. Um, there's some complications in trying to breed these pigs, but we were able to identify a farmer uh, who, who still has a colony, uh, was a farmer in, in Iowa. And so we contacted a person, hey, can you send us some yeah, meat essentially, a few kilogram of meat? Uh, because this is a type of protein that's pretty hard to get uh, if you express it recombinantly. So rather than expressing it in heterologous systems, which is possible, uh, we decided to actually just, why don't we just make use of this you know, natural pig model so we can purify the ranadine receptors from there and use that to image it with uh, electron microscopy. And so that, that was kind of a, yeah, actually the very first link to disease in the randine receptor, that pig model is actually now what allowed us to do uh, the cryoEM study that we did. Yeah, I mean, you find that a lot of that um, from a research perspective is something that uh, will remain applicable for, you know, years and years to come. Um, that, that's a nice little transition for me just kind of asking more uh, about your individual background. Obviously, you're currently at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, but just kind of looking through your, your curriculum, maybe you can talk to me a little bit about the early stage of your career and, um, you know, how you came to, to be at uh, the University of British Columbia. Yeah, so I, I uh, originally I was, I was born in, in Belgium, uh, and that's where I, I did my, my earlier studies. So I was um, trained as a major in, in biochemistry at Ghent University in Belgium. Uh, and that's also where I did my PhD, my graduate studies. So uh, I was trained primarily as a structural biologist using X-ray crystallography um, on proteins that are involved in, in um, uh, glycoside uh, hydrolysis. Um, and when I finished my PhD, I had, a, I would say, a genuine interest in electrical signals and ion channels. Um, so I decided to uh, uh, move to the United States, to San Francisco where I did a postdoc with, uh, in the lab of Dan Miner at the uh, University of California, San Francisco. And so that's where I did some work on, on voltage-gated calcium channels and doing X-ray crystallography, also some electrophysiology. And um, at some point at the time I was there to set up my own lab. And you know, why did I end up in, in Vancouver? Well, because there was a job opening there. <laughs> and I applied. Uh, you kind of have to be uh, you know, open-minded about, you know, uh, reaching out to a lot of different places. Um, but actually the, the position that uh, in, uh, in Vancouver is the first one I applied to. 
And uh, this is a nice place to apply to because it's also located on, on the West Coast. I'd spent a couple of years on the West Coast already. Um, so this was a place where I also saw myself uh, live. And so I applied and um, as a research program, uh, I was you know, obviously generally interested in ion channels and thinking about it from a structural biology viewpoint, uh, my thought was, well, where is there a really need, a real need for structural biology? And then that's how I caught uh, the ranadine receptor, because at the time of starting my lab, um, there was some cryo-EM uh, done on it already, but it was very low resolution cryo-EM with, with today's standards. So I started using X-ray crystallography uh, to kind of map uh, the ranadine receptor at, at high resolution. So, so that's yeah, that's how I got uh, I got that position, uh, proposing to work on ranadine receptors. The more and more I talk with uh, researchers in the field, the more I see, um, and uh, I could kind of talk about it in this light. So, um, the availability for interdisciplinary uh, techniques and methods to to come together. Uh, obviously, you know we're we're talking a lot about ion channels, um, but we're also mentioning other techniques, uh, crystallography, cryo EM, um, in other applications uh, for other research areas. You're combining, um, you know, mass spec with a lot of different things. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, having this viewpoint, looking at things from an interdisciplinary standpoint and maybe what that could mean for the emergence of more researchers looking specifically at ion channels, looking specifically at these um, you know, genetic variants uh, when you're looking at channelopathies, um, and then how that links back to a clinical application when you're looking at things like cardiac arrhythmias, um, chronic pain, you mentioned um, you know, voltage-gated you know, calcium channels, that sort of thing. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so I'll start with, so with the interdisciplinarity. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to be open-minded about which methods you want to apply. Uh, because you know, I, I would say a single technique is not going to answer all the questions that, that one has. Um, for example, and, and techniques obviously evolve. So whereas you know, several years ago, uh, the only structural biology method we were using was, was X-ray crystallography. Uh, simply because at that time, cryo-EM was not, uh, you know, to the standards that it is right now, uh, thanks to new detectors. Um, but even now, I think it's important to realize that, that X-ray crystallography still plays a role. Um, and we have various examples of uh, parts of the ranadine receptor, but also parts of other ion channels that are very poorly resolved in cryo-EM. Um, it's just parts of the protein that are very mobile relative to the rest of the protein. And it's just very hard to get a, a good high resolution handle on that. So there are certain parts, pieces of the randine receptor from which we've been able to learn a lot doing cryo, uh, sorry, doing X-ray crystallography on that individual piece. And it's pieces where, um, you know, the resolution in cryo is so bad that you don't even see secondary structure. You don't even see alpha helices or anything. So it's, it's really very poor in resolution, whereas then with a the crystal structure of that fragment, you, you, get, uh, you get to see every single residue. Um, so, so I would say even with today's uh, standards in cryo-EM, it's important to still consider X-ray crystallography uh, to get a, a broader picture. Um, but of course, I, I think what's important is that 
you know, ion channels, like many other proteins, being dynamic proteins, um, that there are certain methods that one may need to consider uh, to study the dynamics. And part of that can be caught via cryogen. Uh, there are different confirmations that can be uh, computationally separated. You can get multiple structures from one data set. But there is a, a degree of, of um, in the flexibility, in the dynamics of the protein that's, that's not caught with that. And, uh, but spectroscopic methods are, are, are very useful for that. Um, so we have been collaborating um, with colleagues to do uh, NMR uh, also to study this flexibility of intrinsically disordered regions that are very important functionally, but that you just don't see with either X-ray crystallography or, or cryogen. So I think it's, it's good to be open-minded about, you know, not necessarily pick your favorite uh, uh, method, but choose the method that, that works to answer the question you have. Um, and I think, yeah, regardless, electrophysiology is still, you know, a, a major player in that also. Um, you know, we like to test hypotheses that come from the structures and, and really the test is, is in the functional assay there. Um, so I think the second question you had was about um, um, clinical implications. And I would say it's, it's twofold. There's, a, there's an immediate implication and of course, a, a long-term. So the long-term is, is, is the obvious one. You could say if we get structures of the protein in wild-type form, in disease-mutant form, uh, we can see pockets in the protein that might be targeted with small molecules. We can use cryo to map the binding of small molecules, see what they do structurally to the protein. And that could be a nice segue into you know, perhaps altering these molecules or improved uh, with, with therapeutic potential. Uh, and at the same time, we do have a collaboration um, with a lab at the University of Minnesota uh, that has set up a very elegant high throughput uh, drug screen uh, for molecules that can bind around the receptor. And it's very nice to validate these using, using cryo-EM uh, to see these potential uh, lead molecules bound to the ranodine receptor and, and rationalize how they might, might be altered. That's a long-term uh, uh, strategy, of course, because it takes a while. Uh, there's, there's many steps involved. The short term, actually, I would say is, is predictability. Um, uh, for example, we have uh, collaborations with, with local cardiologists who study patients with arrhythmias. And, and a, a typical week, what will happen, there will be an, an email circulating saying, hey, uh, we have this patient with these symptoms. Uh, we sequenced a number of cardiac channels and we found that there is this mutation in the cardiac ranidine receptor. What can you tell us about it? And uh, you know, in some cases, we can just even just map these mutations directly on the available structures and see from that mapping on the 3D structure, we can predict already whether it's likely to alter the function of the protein or not. Um, it's not a guaranteed result. In the end, one needs to do an electrophysiological assay. Uh, but as in some cases, it's, it's very clear that we can say, okay, this particular mutation definitely is going to be disease causing. From where it's located, we know that it's an area of the protein that's very important. And that is extremely useful because it allows the cardiologist to diagnose the disease, to say, okay, for sure, it's this type of arrhythmia that can actually guide the type of treatment. But more importantly, if uh, say that a patient has a particular mutation, 
uh, if that mutation is known to be disease-causing, if we're absolutely certain that that mutation causes disease, that means that every family member who has that same mutation, because it's a genetic disorder, those family members are at risk also, which means that they should probably get uh, treated beforehand, you know, before disaster strikes. Um, so that's the short-term uh, benefit, is being able to, by understanding the disease, by understanding the workings, just to have a better predictive model of which mutations are disease-causing and which mutations, or I should call them sequence variants, are just generally benign and known as a polymorphism. You mentioned a little bit about the academic collaboration that you have with uh, the University of Michigan, if my uh, memory serves me correct. And maybe that brought to my mind um, a little bit about the, the drug discovery, drug screening process. Uh, obviously, you know, from your work, you're looking at, you know, how you take something from a bilayer recording, how you might um, identify a suitable target. And then if you're looking at the, the long tail, you know, how can you bring that forward into a large scale screening um, in order to get to where you want to get to and identifying some of these uh, problematic uh, traits so that you could maybe have a, um, a pathway to, uh, you know, bringing something to market that could have widespread appeal. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is like to collaborate uh, within the academic environment, but also taking a look at these, you know, steps along the way. Yeah, so the, so, so the collaborator is at, is at the University of Minnesota. And so the, the one thing that, that makes a high-throughput screen difficult is the fact that this is an intracellular channel. So you can't have, you know, like some uh, pharmaceutical companies, a nice 384 well format for a patch clamp, and you can apply drugs in every different well and, and use that as your primary screen. That's a lot harder to do because this is an intracellular channel. It's not at the plasma membrane. You can't just easily patch the ER. That's extremely, extremely difficult. Um, you can have nice electrophysiological recordings, single channel recordings uh, using planar lipid bilayer uh, electrophysiology, which is what we also use. Uh, we use the instrument from Nanion for this. And, and it's, it's very nice, but it's not a high throughput method. Right? It's one channel at a time or you know, maybe four at a time in, in, in one uh, uh, instrument. Uh, but it's also a game of patience. It's, it's definitely not a fast method. So the, what, what uh, our collaborator has set up is that they use a spectroscopic method. So they use FRET um, um, between uh, donor and acceptor fluorophores that have been attached at, I would say, very um, um, strategic positions. So the idea is, is that that fret, which tells you something about the distance uh, between two fluorophores, but also about the relative position, the relative orientation of those fluorophores, is kind of a very fast readout of the conformation of the protein. So the idea is simple. The idea is that you have a certain degree of, of fret going on between donor and acceptor. If you add a small molecule that changes that degree of threat, there's a big possibility that that molecule is binding to the randine receptor and changing its conformation. And obviously what you want a drug to do is not ideally not just bind, you want it to be able to change the conformation of the protein. And so using this, this method, which I think is really elegant, um, it can be done extremely fast. 
Um, so they use uh, fluorescence lifetime decay experiments, uh, which essentially each experiment is on the nanosecond scale. So it's extremely fast. So it, it's it's a true high throughput screen. Um, and so then, then you know, uh, part of our role in this project is then uh, to take some of the lead compounds, which are first passed through this high throughput screen, then goes through a bunch of more rigorous tests. You want to make sure it also does what it needs to do. Ideally, you want to inhibit the randine receptor. You don't want to activate it. And, uh, but then the best looking hits can be uh, studied via, via cryolin. Um, and that's nice that you know the the method has evolved so much that it's we can clearly see small molecules bound to the ranadine receptor. One can even observe individual calcium ions uh, bound to their target site uh, on the protein. So, so which means it's it's definitely applicable to uh, other small molecules. So we, we we've discussed a lot about the work that you're doing in ranadine receptors and and the significance there. Um, so, so that's great. I'm sure that's you know helpful to individuals that are also coming uh, of age into this uh, specific target. Uh, maybe as a nice little transition, um, one one thing that I always like to ask in closing is if you could go back and, and kind of um, get a piece of helpful advice for yourself, maybe for someone that is coming into uh, studying ion channels or applying some of these other techniques like X-ray crystallography or the cryo EM. Um, what could you give uh, an aspiring researcher as uh, some some words of uh, of advice? Words of advice. Um, I I think you know my personal thinking is that whatever one chooses, uh, one should choose something that excites you, uh, not to be blindsided by which method is generally considered the most sexy method at the time. Uh, or, or think strategically, you know, what is going to be able to market myself better later on. For me personally, I think the most important thing is still to be excited about the research and everything else will, will naturally follow. If you pick a topic that excites you, whether in grad school or whether during a postdoc, uh, you're going to automatically want to put in the work because you're really genuinely interested in the project. Um, that I think is, is the most important and, and also when I have people that I'm recruiting in the lab, it's the one number one quality I look for. Is this person really interested in a topic? How excited is this person? And, and the rest kind of naturally, naturally follows. Um, but the other piece of advice that I have is what I mentioned earlier is that, um, you know, obviously we do need to think about marketing ourselves. Um, and one thing I would say is, is, is try to stay an integrated researcher um, and not to stay a one trick pony. Um, you can have specializations and we're all specialists in a way. We, we have our narrow range of methods that we use, uh, but it's good to be, to go beyond a single method. Uh, and that's what I mean. Uh, you can use cryo-EM, but I think it's good to also use X-ray crystallography or consider NMR um, to complement your skills, but also just to be able to really answer the questions that you want to answer. Because uh, you know, you're not gonna be able to answer every question with, with a single method. So pick something that excites you and, and be open-minded about methods to use. Use whatever makes sense for the problem. Don't choose the problems because of the method that you have. Perfect, no, I think that's a, a great 
closing and, and naturally I would agree with everything that you've said, um, especially just looking at, you know, the cross collaborative nature of where research is heading now and, you know, maintaining openness to uh, a wide spread of scientific techniques and, and methods uh, is only going to further, you know, your passion for a specific topic. So I'm 100% uh, in line with what you're saying there. Um, what I'll do is I'll make sure that I uh, redirect in the description for today's podcast uh, the information for your lab and uh, the most up-to-date information for your Google Scholar so that other people listening, if they want to get in touch with you, they can. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. All right. No, sounds good. All right. Pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thanks so much. All right.